verse 23, 1 John 3 and verse 23, <clears throat> brings us to what we call the third warrant uh, to, uh, as, as it were, a special motive to believe in Christ and to trust in Christ. We've been looking at these warrants from uh, the, that wonderful document that's the back of our, our confession of faith, the practical use of saving knowledge in the Westminster Confession of Faith. We looked at the first warrant, God's hearty invitation. It was a wonderful thing that God in open heart and in warm manner invites sinners to come unto him. Sometimes people invite you to their home and you just don't really know whether they want you there or whether they don't want you there. <clears throat> but this is a hearty invitation. That's how the confession describes it from Almighty God from Isaiah chapter 55. The offer of grace is given to all who thirst for the things of God to come and to quench their thirst. Then the second warrant we looked at from 2 Corinthians 5 uh, verse 19 to 21. Again, a, another amazing passage of scripture where God desires to be reconciled to sinners. We could understand it if it was inversely said that sinners desire to be reconciled to him, but God instead invites sinners to be reconciled to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this third warrant, it comes with highest authority, as it were, from the throne of heaven itself, and it provides the remedy, I believe, for all the sin of lost humanity. Obedience to this commandment, what happens? Well, obedience, open, obedience opens up the windows of heaven. Because verse 22 tells us it's a thing that is most pleasing in his sight. And God has sent these warrants to Anna Long over these past few weeks. And again, he sent another warrant tonight. Souls are not saved, men and women, by keeping the Ten Commandments. You could not be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments because none of us could ever keep them perfectly enough. We could work from now to the end of eternity itself and our keeping of them would not suffice. The ancient law of God convicts us of our sin. The ancient law of God shows us our sin. The ancient law of God is our code of conduct. But it is only through faith in Christ that we'll be saved from our sin. So this gospel commandment is in contrast to all that goes before. And it's God's commandment under the gospel age. That's why this, the, 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 the section here starts off verse 11. This is the message. So this is the commandment that you heard from the beginning that you should love one another. We can't have a higher commandment than this. We don't have a higher motive to encourage sinners to trust in Christ and to be saved. Why? Simply because sinners are commanded so to do. It'd be different if Ian Horace would have said, who, who would listen to his word? But this is God's word. This is God's commandment to the lost. I don't want anyone to go away from the meeting tonight and say, well, there's nothing really there for me. It's for everyone. This is God's command to your heart and to your soul. This is God's command to each and every one of us. And it's a simple command to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he gave us commandment. So as we look at this third warrant tonight, may there be a search warrant sent out by the Spirit of God that will arrest some heart in the gathering, young or old, and bring them to a knowledge of the Saviour.
It teaches us firstly what we are to believe in order to be saved. You know, what do you sign up to? People say nowadays it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But you know it's a lie of the devil. It is actually a lie of the devil. It does matter what you believe. Of course it matters what you believe. And if you believe the wrong things, I want to tell you tonight you'll be lost and damned for all of God's eternity. The answer is clearly given in the text that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you just want a short, concise confession of faith, this is all that's necessary. You don't have to sign up to anything else other than what we find in 1 John 3 and verse 23. The faith is centered on the name, on the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now in the Bible, the name is taken to represent the whole person. As I've often said to you before, names are important. Names are important. Bible names are important. And so in order to be saved, we've got to believe on all that the name represents. We must believe him to be God's son. That's all in the text. He is the son of the Most High God. I was looking at this in the past week. There are some 23 references to the son. Just in this one little epistle of 1 John. And of course... Uh, John's Gospel, written by the same man, we believe, has over 40 references to the Son. John's Gospel starts off with some of those great known uh, uh, verses. John 1.18 No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has come, he has revealed him, he has declared him. This was the work of the Father. Then we think of all those wonderful verses in John 3, John 3, 16. All the boys and girls would be able to quote it, I have no doubt. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's a very a Apostle John way of putting it. His only begotten son. That tells us something about the uniqueness of the son. There are many of the new translations have taken that out of the Bible. But I believe it should be there. It's used so many times. Uh, The only begotten son of the most high God. And of course John uses it again in his epistle. 1 John 4 and 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son. Into the world that we might live through him. There was never anybody born like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was uniquely conceived. There's been never any conception like the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was the the virginal conception. There was never anyone like the Lord Jesus Christ ever born into this world. Because he lived sinlessly. Sinlessly. We, we couldn't, we, you and I, we couldn't even comprehend that. We couldn't even comprehend what it would be like to go through one day without sin. But here was someone who was born without Adamic original sin. And someone who went through life and never thought a wrong thought, committed a wrong deed, said a wrong word. He was absolutely perfect. That tells us something about the uniqueness of this wonderful person of the Son of God. And only those who can accept the divinity of the Son, that he is the Son of God, the Bible teaches us, can be saved. There are churches tonight in Ulster, and they deny 
the deity and the divinity of Jesus Christ and to say he is not the son of God. Let me tell you men and women, they are not preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have a gospel to preach. Because if Jesus Christ is not the son of God, there is no gospel to proclaim. Because the gospel starts off here that he is his son. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's son. He is his only begotten son. In the days of the apostle John, remember all of those apostolic fathers that had to battle with many isms. We think only the isms are for our day. But they had to battle with many isms. And one of the isms that they had to battle with was Gnosticism. Those who denied that the Son of God came in the flesh. It was so rife and prevalent in that day. John wrote in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. It was so clear, wasn't it? But verse 3 said, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. The battle lines were clearly drawn by the Apostle John. If you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh and is the Son of God, you are of God. And if you deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you're not of God and you have imbibed the spirit of Antichrist. If you said that from some pulpits today, your ministry would be over. The uniqueness of him, we believe him to be God's son. He did come. God manifest in the flesh. He really did come. We believe that the son of God is Jesus. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus. We just stopped there for a little minute or two. I was thinking of how the, the, the New Testament opens up. This whole revelation of God's word. If you go back there just for a second to Matthew's Gospel chapter 1. How does it open up? This whole New Testament, it says in Matthew 1 and 1, is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The son of David the son of Abraham. That's very significant. The Old Testament scriptures in Genesis chapter 1 starts off with the generation, the genealogy of the world, how the world was brought into being, how everything was put in its place and is, is kept in its place. But the New Testament starts off with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the son of David. The son of Abraham. Here we have the mission of the Messiah. Right here in Matthew 1 and verse 1. And the rest of the New Testament is an unfolding of that. And here we have further elaboration upon it uh, by the apostles themselves. In the short epistle John uses this lovely name of Jesus some 12 times. How sad today I will guarantee you. If you go out in the workplace this week, the only time you'll hear the lovely name of Jesus when it's taken as a curse word or as a swear word. But what a lovely name is the name of Jesus. John opens up in 1 John 1 and 3. He said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that we may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. 
Christ. And then on folding it further down the chapter, he said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. That same Jesus is the very one that the angel spoke to Joseph about in Matthew 1 and 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Call his name Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sin. The Jesus of the New Testament equates with the Joshua of the Old Testament. The Joshua of the Old Testament was the great deliverer, the one who would deliver the people of God, who would bring them into the land, who would take the land captivity, who would take the land captive for them and set them free. Now the Lord Jesus is the equivalent in the New Testament. He's come to deliver his people and to save them from their sin. Who are we to believe in? We're to believe in the Son. We're to believe in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're to be saved, here's just a little short confession of faith. Do you believe him to be the Son of God? Do you believe him to be Jesus? The one who will come and save people from their sin. But he's also the Christ. The Christ. This was the Messiah. The Old Testament promised Messiah. The anointed of the Father. The one who was set aside. The ancient of days from all eternity. He was sent into this world on salvation's errand. He was the anointed one. The Lord Jesus Christ was the anointed one. He was sent on a mission. We talked about the mission of the Messiah. He came to save sinners. He came that they might be redeemed. He didn't come to partly save them. That's, that's what an Arminian evangelical gospel preaches today. But brethren and sisters, the older, the older I get, the more I am convinced of it in my own heart and in my own life. As I know my own heart and as I've worked with many people over the years, if salvation is not all of God, it's not of God. If it's not all of God, it's not of God. It has to be all of God. There are some people today, evangelical people, they say, well, 99% of it's all of grace, but that 1% has to be of man. If there's even 1% of man in it, you're lost. Why would God send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Messiah, into this world on a mission to do 99% of the work? And leave that 1% undone for you or me to do. Knowing that we couldn't do it ourselves. And we'd be lost. No, the Lord Jesus, the great Messiah, was sent on a mission. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 2 and verse 10. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He came to fight the battle. He was our great captain. He engaged the enemy at Calvary. And he won the day in those dark hours on Calvary's rugged cross. And through his death and through his redeeming work, he's still bringing many sons to glory. We must believe that it is through the redeeming work of God's son, Jesus Christ, that people will be saved. There's no other way to be saved. 
Today people are looking for new ways. There's no new way to be saved. Sometimes, you know, people, they'll travel from one end of the country to the other end of the country to hear a preacher and they'll say that preacher has a new message. There's no new message. It's just the same old message of God's redeeming love. Through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, souls can be saved. And without that shed blood, no one could be saved. I rejoice, as we sang earlier on in the meeting, that all of the ransomed church of God, they're going to be saved by the redeeming blood of the Lamb. Not one of them are going to be left behind. In order to be saved, we also have to believe that not only only are our sins forgiven, and we bless God for that, but also his righteousness is imputed to us. When God met with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he didn't just call them to himself because he could see through their sham covering over of their sin, but he dressed them. He dressed them. And when we stand before Almighty God, forgiven though we are, and we we, we do bless God for that, when we stand before Almighty God, he has dressed us. We thought this morning in the talk to the boys and girls of that parable in Matthew 22 where the king provided the garments of the guests that are coming to the wedding. And here we are, we're arrayed in garments, Isaiah 61 and 10, in garments of salvation. That's how he presents us. And what is that? That's the righteousness of his son. Imputed to us. Received by faith alone. Uh, Everybody likes to come to church on Sunday, as we say in Ulster, in their Sunday best. Oh, but there's something far better than our Sunday best. The garments of salvation were presented We're presented tonight in the presence of Almighty God in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a thought. That's that's what we believe. God commands all men everywhere to believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, unto salvation. And God also, in giving this commandment, tells us of the consequences if it is not obeyed. For those who disobey it are lost. They're lost. Sometimes people think today, well, whether they obey the law or whether they don't obey the law in this land, they'll not be caught, so we can just do whatever we want to do. But you'll not disobey this commandment and get off with it. God says there is a cost. And it's your soul's salvation for all eternity. He that believeth and is baptized, the Bible says, shall be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Let me repeat that. The baptism is important, but the onus is not on the baptism because the latter part of the verse is, He that believeth not shall be damned. You could be baptized and still be damned if you haven't believed. The Lord Jesus called you tonight to acknowledge who you are. Just, just own up to who you are. We've, we've looked at who he is. In this first epistle of John he says, you acknowledge who you are. John, in opening up that letter, he said in 1 John 1 and 8, if we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who do you confess them to? Certainly not to me, any other preacher or priest. None of them could forgive you your sins. But go to Jesus. And through his mediation you'll obtain forgiveness for your sins. The first sermon the Lord Jesus preached was recorded in Mark 1 and 15. Do you know what it just summarized? There wasn't a big long set of points in it. It could be summarized just in a few words. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What was the last sermon he preached? Repent and believe. And what's, what has he given to his ambassadors to preach? Repent and believe. Believe on his. Believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, consider with me from this gospel command. Well then, how are we to believe in order to be saved? We don't want just to leave this idea of faith hanging midair and without any definition and make it so abstract that people don't know what we're talking about. This isn't just a mere intellectual acquiescence to the fundamental truths of the gospel. There are many people who could quote all 107 questions and answers in the shorter catechism. And they've got a, a brilliant head knowledge of all of those great fundamental foundational truths of the historic Christian faith. But they haven't got Jesus in their heart or in their life. There must be a trusting of the soul unto Christ in order for the saving of uh, the soul. The verb to believe in verse 23, 1 John 3 and 23, it means to have faith in. Faith in something. It's good to believe in something, men and women. We live in a faithless age, and it's good to believe in something. And if somebody asks you tomorrow, what do you believe in? What will you tell them? Will you say you're a free Presbyterian? Will you say you're a Presbyterian and Anglican? What will you say? That's not good enough. That will not tell them very much. Tell them what you believe in. In his son Jesus Christ. Does not make all the difference. That's personal. Saving. Trusting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To entrust. To commit. To trust in. It's all, it's all encompassed in this word here. Believe. The word trust explains what it means to believe. Believing is trusting. God's word and Jesus for salvation. It's just trusting. Trusting what God has said in his word. People sometimes say, you know, <clears throat> a, such and such a one is coming or to do work at your house. And uh, people have said, we, we just said as it, as it were here, uh, well, we trust he will come. They're, they're trusting that word. They've got nothing else. You just have to believe on the word and trust that it will come. But they're trusting in that word. And if you put your trust in Christ and believe in his word, then your sins, which are many, they can all be washed away. First John, sorry, John 1, 12, 13 ties all of this in so nicely. As many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God. Again, John's interesting, just this phrase again. Even to them that believe on his name. Have you believed on his name? Have you trusted in his name? What are you trusting in? I'm trying to get 
underneath all of the veneer of the Sunday respectability. What are you trusting in for God's great eternity? Because if you're not trusting in God's Son, Jesus Christ, you've nothing. You've nothing else. This believing, this trusting with all of the heart that's illustrated many times in the Bible. I was thinking of some of them. I, I thought of Acts chapter 8, that wonderful chapter where Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Now the gospel's going to go down into Africa. And we read that Philip got up and he, 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 the eunuch said to him, you know, what, does hinder, what hinders me to be baptized? And for Acts 8, 37, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's nearly taken, isn't it, from 1 John 3 and 23. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Sometimes we, we, have, we, we are so... Confused, I think, in our evangelical terminology, we think it's good enough to pray some sort of a, fair, a prayer repeated after somebody else. No, brethren and sisters, it takes a lot more than that. What do you believe in? What are you trusting in? It's only trust in God's Son, the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, will get you to heaven. Nothing else will ever do. I think of that great gospel passage that God used so, so used in my own conversion, Romans 10 and 9. Remember being taught that as a child in, in children's meetings 50 years ago. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Tell me tonight, are you saved? Because if you haven't confessed with your mouth, but believed in your heart, trusted in your heart, you're still not saved. To believe is the same as trusting. When Spurgeon preached in this text, he wrote some wonderful words about it. He looked at it in two ways, negatively positively. I'm not going to go into all the outworkings that, that he put into it, but <clears throat> negatively he said, he took aim at those who preach any other way of bidding the sinner believe because God commands him to believe. He said it's a boasting way of faith. When we tell a sinner that is filthy as he is without any preparation or qualification, he's to take Jesus Christ to be his all in all, finding in him all that he can ever need. We, need, we leave no room for self-glorification. All must be of grace. All must be of grace. You don't have to prepare yourself to come to Christ. You just have to come. What a truth to underscore. Free grace and gratitude always go together. He counseled that vast congregation that he preached to. Uh, not to rest in their experience. All that is of nature spinning must be unravelled. And everything that getteth into Christ's place, however dear and most precious in itself, must be broken in pieces. <clears throat> and then let me show you this. Sinners, Jesus wants nothing of you. 
Nothing whatsoever. Nothing done. Nothing felt. He gives both work and feeling. Ragged, penniless, just as you are. Lost, forsaken, desolate. With no good feelings or no good hopes. Till Jesus comes to you. And in these words of pity he addresses you. Him that cometh to me. I will in no wise cast out. Will he cast you out? No. He'll he'll take you in for all of God's eternity. Positively, Spurgeon said, the command to believe in Christ is the only warrant the sinner will ever need. How runs it? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It ought to run according to other preachers' plans. Preach the gospel to every regenerate person, to every convinced sinner, to every sensible soul. Now that was Spurgeon's battle with the hyper-Calvinists of his day. I am a Calvinist. But I'm an evangelical Calvinist. And I just love it to be so. How then is it to be put? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And as we look at that verse again in Mark 16, there's nothing, nothing in it whatsoever about the prerequisites to believing. Without qualification, you're, called, you're commanded tonight. You're commanded tonight to believe on the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Unto the saving of your soul. As we close. Look at the evidence. That you've rightly believed. Sometimes people lack assurance. Because they're looking for wrong things. They're looking for how they feel. They're looking for some bright light in the sky. They're, they're looking for some emotional experience. And all of that they're put together. But there's different evidence given here. In First John 3, 23. Uh, the latter part says and love one another and love one another as he gave us commandment if the command to believe has been rightly obeyed then the evidence has to be seen it has to be seen the first part of the command uh, enjoins belief in God uh, and that by necessity applies love to God that is the first part of the, the great law of God the table of the law the first commandment to the fourth commandment. The second part of this command enjoins love to our neighbour, especially to the brethren, the brethren and sisters in Christ, the household of faith. And this equates to the second table of the law, the fifth to the tenth commandment. But that's all for another time. <clears throat> this is a theme John takes up time and time again. First John 2, 7 to 11. Again, in this chapter, uh, from 11 right down to the end. The evidence of grace in the heart. Look at verse 14. We know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. We love the brethren. It's a wonderful thing to say that you're in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in fellowship with him, you ought to be in fellowship with others who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And love the brethren. And how is, all that, how is all that worked out? Well, I'll show you how it works out here. <clears throat> because further on down those verses, uh, verse 16, this is sacrificial love. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's given, isn't it? How many Christians in this meeting tonight 
would be prepared to give their lives for other Christians in the meeting. Because that's what 1 John 3.16 is teaching us. Oh, you don't have to give your life in Northern Ireland as yet for other Christians. But it says here in verse 17, Who so hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him? How dwelleth the love of God in him? What, what mercy have you shown to other Christians who are struggling? It doesn't have to be some ostentatious show. It can be quietly done, anonymously done, a helping hand along the journey. You know there are Christians that are going to die with thousands in the bank. And do you know who will get it? An ungodly government. They'd have been safer spreading it around, wouldn't it? And they'd have got the blessing of doing and showing the love of God in their heart for other Christians. Where Verse 18, it says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. There are many today, and as our American cousins say, they are good at talking the walk. You and I, we're not called to talk the walk. We're actually called to walk the talk. We're to love indeed and in truth. Indeed and in truth. The only way to bless him is to obey these commands. I, I don't think the gospel warrant could be any clearer, any more concise. We're commanded by God to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another. Now in the light of that command, you know, I put it to you as we conclude the meeting, how will you obey it? If you walk out through that door unbelieving, you've disobeyed it. I want you to know that as you go home. You've disobeyed a clear command of Almighty God. And in the light of God's judgment day, we, we put you in warning of that. Remember the man who was born blind, John 9, upon whom the great miracle of healing was wrought? Remember how he obeyed the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ and he received his sight. And the Pharisees of that day, they put him out of the synagogue. They, they really thought that Jesus Christ had broken the Sabbath laws. They, they didn't understand that acts of mercy can be legitimately wrought on the Sabbath day. And they put out that other man who was healed. And the Savior came to him at the end of the Sabbath day. And this is what he said to him. Do you believe on the Son of God? And I think just in a similar manner, Jesus comes to all in this gathering tonight and he says to you, Do you believe on the Son of God? We read that man said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. You have seen Jesus in the word tonight. And through a spirit he's talked with you. And what's the only result? What's the only, what's the only action that you can take just like this man took? That man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. May the Lord bring you to that place.
this very night. Let's unite our hearts in prayer, please, and let's go.